Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Thank you so much for being here this afternoon. It is a, uh, my pleasure, in fact, to, to be here with you and enjoy the um, presentation we're going to have from our speaker today. I would like to thank you all to the Chancellor's Colloquium. We bring distinguished speakers to our campus, and we are so really pleased to have uh, with us today a great speaker, and I will speak about our speaker in a few minutes. I just wanted to say that um, this uh, series, our colloquium, started last year, and there was a reason for um, um, initiating this uh, series of um, uh, presentations. We wanted, as we started, as you know, as an institution, on a very exciting path moving forward. We are a great university. We have so much to be proud of. We have so many excellent faculty, staff, and students who have done wonderful work over many, many years. And that places us in a wonderful position in terms of um, looking at our future in a, in a very exciting way and then trying to identify for us. And we have done that this past year. We've spoke extensively about where we want to be, what type of an institution we want to become, and uh, the, the fact that we want to really build on the strengths that we have developed over so many years and try to envision a future not just for us but for everybody else in the U.S. and around the world. And in that context, we really wanted to bring individuals who have thought about, obviously, the future of higher education, the future of research, innovation in universities like ours, and we wanted to engage with them in a discussion. We wanted to do it on our campus so our community can participate in this discussion because we can all learn from those debates. So um, we are very pleased today to have a wonderful um, colleague and um, a speaker that you, uh, as you will see, uh, will engage us in some very um, interesting and difficult questions about what lies ahead and um, what kind of challenges are we willing as a top public research university to take, uh, consider and undertake and, and move on and whether we are ready to contribute to solutions to those challenges in ways that can highlight the strengths of our own institution and place us in a position of leadership as it comes to defining higher education and defining research in universities and innovation and translation of, of the knowledge we create. So we have with us today Dr. Roger Beachy, um, previous chief scientist of USDA and at present the director of National Institute of Food and Agriculture, which is a federal entity that uh, manages the funding for research, extension, and education for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, he's a colleague. Um, he has uh, been a scientist, very well known in his own area of expertise. He's a member of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences and the founding president of uh, Danforth Plant Science Center, it's a nonprofit in um, St. Louis. He has held academic positions at Washington University in St. Louis and uh, with the Scripps Research Institute in uh, San Diego. 
Roger is also internationally renowned for his groundbreaking research on developing virus-resistant plants through biotechnology. And he's here to talk to us today or engage with us in a discussion about the future in agriculture and, of course, in basic research and translational research in this area. And uh, also he will ask some very difficult questions about how ready are we in this particular area to define a future that we all aspire to in research and how ready are we to uh, initiate a dialogue at the national level that will create and sustain a vibrant research in this particular area. I also wanted to say that this morning I had um, great pleasure to participate with him in a press release about great research that is taking place on our campus. We just announced, he did as a matter of fact, and I was standing next to him very happy <laughs> as he was making the announcement, Neil and I were there. He announced that um, UC Davis re just received a $40 million uh, in two grants, obviously, it's a research funding that we have received to do a very exciting research and to develop new varieties of wheat and barley and also to do a sequencing in the genome of certain um, conifers. And so it is, um, I've, I've learned a lot that I did not know today about the complexity of those problems. I have to tell you that in addition to just attacking a very difficult scientific problem, the outcomes of this work have tremendous potential in translating what we learn into many other areas and to into um, creating an environment where new ideas can emerge from that and maybe new products, new services, and hopefully new economies. So at this point, I would like to thank him for accepting to uh, be our speaker today and to invite him to come forward. Thank you so much. And thank you, Chancellor Kataye, for the um, for the invitation. I was very pleased to come, especially in light of the of the um, uh, announcement of the of the new grants from from NIFA. Uh, really, it's a new day in NIFA the way that we've made some changes, and I was very pleased to see that some of the uh, as expected, you all did well in in some of these uh, early applications. I'd like to also thank Neil uh, Van Alphen because uh, he and and um, Dan Dooley have been encouraging me to stop by the campus and and over the last year or so, and, and uh, several times it was arranged and canceled. So thank you very much for being patient and, and hosting me so very well today. It's, it's been a pleasure to, to interact with faculty and, and go to see that some of the, not only the, the cutting edge of, of facilities and instrumentation, but the quality of the faculty that I've met, the students. I had a, uh, I had a chance to meet with the IGERT uh, uh, participants yesterday, and, and it was a great deal of fun to see students engaged in the cutting-edge science that will be part of our new economy, is certainly part of our knowledge generation. Uh, I, I come also from, from the Department of Agriculture as a, as, as a, a, a person that supports the, uh, the President's mission in, in engaging, creating and engaging and deploying science for the benefit of humankind. And our own Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, in support of the work that uh, President Obama has has sort of laid out for the for our country in, in, a, in a more more science rich manner, uh, is to represent a, a department that, that recognizes the importance of agriculture in rural economy, 
recognizes the importance of agriculture in global economy, recognizes the role of agriculture in sustainability and renewability of our, of our outstanding natural resources. With that as a background, uh, when uh, Mr. Vilsack asked if um, for me to come on board, uh, the, the challenge was, uh, was several fold. There, there are some things that I can do and things that I can't do. I've, I've been in government at such a short time, always been my own boss before. Uh, that's changing. Uh, I'm not. You are my bosses. Uh, it, but it, it does lead to new, uh, new opportunities but challenges, especially now in the, in, in the, with the change that we're seeing in our economy. And, and so the question that the chancellor asked is, is the ones that we've talked about. You know, how, do we, how do we prepare ourselves and, and, uh, for a future that, that builds on the natural resources that we, that we have, builds on the incredible economy of agriculture that has developed as a consequence of those natural resources and the investments 150 years ago in the formation of the, of the land-grant university system? How do we build on all of that 150 years? And then layer on top of that all this incredible knowledge that comes out of the omixes, the omixes of genomics and phenomics and whatever else is that you all are creating. How do you how do you take all that to create benefit for those that support this enterprise? And how do we choose? And then how do we how do we deal with this tremendous potential? in a way that's, that can, can leverage the past into the future. And you'll hear me say throughout that, I'm, that, like many of us in this room, we're disappointed that the level of support in Congress for the work that we do, those who make the, make the judgments inside the beltway, who decide how well we will do based on, on the financial models that, that have funded research, uh, and you ask yourself, we ask ourselves, why is it not easier to do than it is? Why, why, the, why the differential between certain agencies of research and other agencies of research? And I'm going to touch on that t- today. I also bring a, uh, uh, a welcome from, from Kathy Wotecki. Dr. Wotecki, is, as some of you know, has a, a long history in research in, in nutrition and uh, food safety. And Dr. Wotecki now serves as a chief scientist in the department and, and is um, working hard as the undersecretary for research, education, and um, and economics, that that creates the in, in which NIFA and the Agriculture Research Service, the Economic Research Services, and NAS, the statistic organization, is is based. And Dr. Wateki's uh, uh, coming to Washington and being in, in this in this way has has really uh, given us additional momentum to the kinds of change that we think are important. So with that as an introduction, I, have, I know I have probably now only well, 12 minutes to, to show you 20 slides and talk about the message before we get to the panel. By the way, I think this format that you've designed is, is just outstanding. I look forward to the discussion that the panelists uh, with us. So let me uh, give you the take home and those of you are, who are standing. By the way, I am absolutely thrilled to see so many faces here today. I, I didn't know what the level of interest would be in, a, in an arcane discussion like this one, but, but uh, it's clearly of interest to many of you. So thank you all for coming. But this is the take-home. Uh, the past investments that we've made in, um, in agriculture and food systems has paid off. What we did before paid good rewards. But those needs of, the, of a global economy and the global future are different than they were 150 years ago or indeed 10 years ago. 
Now, I'll, I'll make the point that focusing on outcomes is good, and you do that in, in colleges of agriculture. We do it in, in health service industry, but we do it also in food and agriculture industry. And I make the point that, that what matters in Congress is what the outcomes are. It's not how bright you are or how many papers you have in Science Magazine, but it's, it's dependent on how well you, you fill the, um, the needs of the American community and increasingly the global community. Fourthly, there are lots of stakeholders, lots of, lots of people that you serve. So all of those that you serve are the same ones that we serve, and they're the ones who come to Washington and knock on doors. And lots of different voices, many different messages, and many different kinds of consumers. And lastly, I want to engage you in the, in the process of thinking about the future, because the future of food and agriculture will be shaped by forces that are different than today. And, and those forces are, are, are global in nature, and I, I'm going to talk about them because if it takes 15 years from research to application, we should be looking at, that, at what is likely to be the future in 20 years for the kind of things that we do today. So this is a, a, a figure that is a little complex, but I ask it to be made. Uh, just I, I, saw it, I saw a figure like this for energy one time, and, and I, I asked for it to be done in, um, in the context of food and the food industry. And it's very interesting. We have, we have federal uh, dollars that are invested on the, uh, on, on the uh, left-hand side. We have state resources that go in, and we have investments by the private sector altogether the investments that we make in agriculture in these three quarters are about $7.8 billion annually. From that, we produce an agriculture that has uh, – this is an 06 number, not an 09. It, it would certainly be different for 09. But the, uh, the value of that, that agriculture is at about $121 billion in GDP. Now, it's about 2.1 million jobs. And um, this year, the number says $20 billion in net exports. In fact, uh, in, in 11, it's, about, it's, it's estimated to be 21. Total sales of $126 billion exported. We have a net positive of about $41 billion. And of that, uh, it's created by what's called a total productivity factor. That's the genetics, the environment, the, uh, the capabilities of our ag planting and, and, and the, sort of the ag engineering part of, of all of this. And, and post-harvest uh, um, supplies and, and, and benefits. And that uh, is worth about $1.7 billion annually, the, our increase of 1.4% of using a total factor of productivity, all the factors engaged, uh, is worth about $1.7 billion annually. Now, if you add to that food manufacturing, it's another $165 billion. Again, these are 06 figures, not 09 or 010, and a number of jobs. Our, our, our value of our export value is, creates on the range of um, a million jobs per billion export, I think. A pretty good number when you think about the economy today. The challenges, of course, are not just food. They're not just population. They're, they're energy and everything else that agriculture does. It's not we're simply... We're more than just a food and, and feed operation in agriculture. And as population grows, and that projection is about like this, by 2050 that'll, or 2060, the, the numbers will sort of flatten out. 
and we will uh, presumably achieve a, a, a level. But the challenges that, that are faced in our, in our agriculture in the next century, are, 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 we're asked to do far more with it than we had perhaps envisaged. These challenges of the 21st century were, were described by the report that came from the National Research Council, part of the National Academy of Sciences, which, uh, and with, through a panel, a panel and a, a report that came to be widely known in the economic, academic, academic uh, circles of the new biology for the 21st century. What was ex- interesting in that, in, in that report uh, is that the report was written not by plant biologists, not by agriculturists, not by animal scientists, but by physicists and mathematicians and biomedical scientists and the others who determine what uh, identifies those major societal challenges. And those societal challenges that are indicated in this first report almost hinge almost entirely in agriculture and natural resource management. Energy, calories, food, health, nutrition, well-being, and, and a sustainability climate change, and bioenergy. And if you look at it in, in that regard, you realize that all of a sudden we now have a whole series of other scientists who, who agree with what we've been saying for a long time, that what we do is pretty important. The question is, who's listening? Because we've, we've, we've been uh, somewhat less than well-funded for what we do. But on the, on the other hand, what was a funding mechanism of 150 years ago or even 100 years ago or even back to 50 years ago isn't the one that's going to carry us on because industry has changed. As I visited uh, around departments and mission areas today, I, I learned of uh, something that, that you have in this state that's perhaps uh, m- more, um, more progressive than others. That you, have, you have lots of different things you grow here. And so you have a lot of other industry that helps to support the research in the institution that is that is founded on the basic uh, principles of science that might have started NSF or NIH or, or USDA funding, but then you have the partnerships with the private sector, which are increasingly help, uh, helping us to focus on what market really wants and, and helps to pull things into it, and we, we respond accordingly. And, and, uh, and although we have managed to do that in the face of growing population, we, we have another apparent trend that that shows us that we're in trouble for the future. If we were to keep on our current trajectory of, of spending and, and agriculture productivity, this total productivity factor I mentioned earlier, at the same rate that we are now, we would become increasingly lag, lagging uh, from the needs of the population growth that I talked about in the last slide. So if we don't find ways to achieve that total factor productivity to increase it to the level of, that, of the population increase, it's not just the one billion that we have now that are underfed or undernourished or malnourished. It's the added additive to it. Now, some of that challenge will be from the group that I saw this afternoon on post-harvest stability. Of, I mean, if we knew how to store things better, we'd have less loss and then productivity wouldn't have to be up. But that's part of TFP. Total, total factor productivity. So there are many ways to do this. It's not just the genetics of production. It's not just the soil fertility. It's not just the ability to store more, to have more, and 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 uh, sell it. But it's it's all of that together. And and so every department I met today, and lots that I didn't meet, uh, take part in filling that that gap. 
But recognizing the gap should help us to set priorities in, in our research. And, and that priority isn't just set by us in this, in this room, it's set by those that we serve. Um, and, and how we establish that to achieve total factor productivity will help to address the American situation. But look at the disparity that's shown in this slide of, of total factor productivity in different parts of the globe. It's pretty remarkable. There are some that are doing better than we, where there is where there's the the investment and the and and the need. I mean, if you look at those those areas where the total factor productivity is is higher than the U.S., for example, Brazil, and in China, there was a of course there was a a, a big surge in 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 their increase in improvement of agriculture over the last few years, but also a great investment. And that continued investment in those economies will, will be, this is the first slide that I want you to begin to think about, the global challenges that will face American agriculture. Uh, Brazil is a, is a wonderful place to visit, a wonderful place to do agriculture. A lot of Americans invest in Brazil. Brazil has a land mass the size of Indiana that's not yet brought into soybean cultivation. And they produce two, two crops a year of soybeans that make their own nitrogen and don't cost as much to make as maize. You have to ask yourself, who is China going to buy the protein from that they need to feed their growing cattle and, and, and animal industry? Will it be from the United States or will it be from Brazil? And if it's not the United States, where will, what will United States farming be lacking the soybean market? Now, I'm painting a scenario that probably won't come true, but, but the point is to have you think about what agriculture is not just today, but what it will be as other economies come in to agriculture productivity. The needs in India will be a little challenging because of the water limitations and, and the growth in, 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 uh, in a population. But then you see this enormous under uh, uh, productive area in sub-Saharan Africa, the, the, the part of Africa that's, that's not uh, as politically stable as other parts, but that have reasonably good natural resources. Water, temperature, soil that can be improved, as our friend uh, Dr. Norman Borlaug reminded us about what makes good soil health. You can take good soil under the right conditions and make it better soil. And, and there's, so there's a challenge there. So think about the total factor productivity, that, how uneven it is, but once, if that does get stabilized, and I think that it can, our, our, our friends at, at, at the Earth Institute at Columbia have their own model of what it will take to be successful in Africa. The Gates Foundation has its own model. And USAID have, has its own methods. But our goal is that agriculture should be as effective and as, as uh, productive in the parts of the globe that are, that are suited for agriculture. There's a, there's a blank area up here that you don't see Ukraine uh, as, a, as a large producer. But Ukraine has re remarkable natural resources for agriculture that are not yet brought in. What happens when Ukraine decides they will, in fact, be an agriculture producer and an exporter? So think about what we do today and what the needs are in the future. But, so it's clear that, that there is a research gap and that that gap is, is, uh, is apparent to most of us in this room, that society is in underinvesting in agriculture, at least in many of the societies, and the demand in those poor countries uh, needs to be to raise total factor productivity. And, and, the, um, and countries that are, that are progressive in Africa are, are seeing that they, their future demands 
to that they invest in in fact, total factor productivity, in uh, better soil, better seeds, and better management, better education, better extension services, and better research, and so forth. Against all of this, I, I'm showing two slides that my our, our colleague Dr. Mary Clutter showed at a recent meeting, and and developed for for showing uh, the presidents and, and other the deans and. and of agriculture at the uh, APLU meeting several months ago. And I, I'm not going to bother going through all those milestones, but it starts from when uh, USDA was established by President Lincoln and, and goes through a, a number of, uh, of uh, examples of, of progress. That moves on to the, next, to the next slide, which includes, at the very end of it, the, the sequencing, uh, re realization of the sequencing in the maize genome and using marker-assisted breeding to, to increase the rate of, of uh, acceleration of, of yield and productivity. Uh, it's in between there all the pieces of recombinant DNA, the first genetically engineered plants, the first, the first vaccines for animals uh, to reduce animal disease, the, the, and, and so forth. So there's a lot of firsts that have happened in those last two slides, and these are highly significant scientific events. They have taken us forward by leaps and bounds where, uh, against where we were uh, in, 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 the, in the years past. So against that background, uh, the establishment of the National Institute of Food and Agriculture was created as a, as a way of, of highlighting uh, the needs for, for more agriculture research and to do something that, that many of us in, in the audience would have thought was a natural, and that, but it is not, and that is to remind our listeners, our stakeholders, that there is a science for agriculture. Many consider an agri agriculture to be a, a technology. It's, it's, it's part of production. It's just, as a matter of fact, the, uh, the history of the National Academy of Science was that a number of years ago, we talked about establishing an, a National Academy of Agriculture Sciences because they thought that it wasn't really science. And finally, it, it, it was brought in. It is a science. And we are heavily dependent on science to get us the advances that we need. And so part of the, part of the role has been to bring greater focus, there's been an attempt to bring greater focus uh, and attention to the uh, fact that, that agriculture depends on science and that we are a science agency. And, uh, and through that, uh, uh, I'll give you a couple of examples of, of what we do in the agency. And part of what we do is distribute competitive grants uh, in, a, in a program in this, uh, Advanced, it's, an, it's an advanced food research institute, AFRI. But this is a, a snapshot from 2010. We had more than $4 billion worth of requests for resources. We'll have a budget that, we'll, that we will uh, uh, we'll have of something in the range of $260 million. There are several other things I want you to see on here that that of that request, 570 million came from non-land non grant institutions. That should tell us several things. That these grand societal challenges aren't just important for us, they're important for everybody. It's not just 107 land grant institutions, uh, colleges and universities, it's another 400 who want to take part, want to be partners, want to partner with you, want to partner with others, to, to be part of the solution of, of food and agriculture, natural resource management, biofuels, renewability, the whole works. So I, I think that was, so that's part of the success here. 
we did raise the visibility, we raised the expectation, and there is a ton of interest. If I showed you the list of names of the universities that were, that were part of this, they, they would astound you. They're every, every major private university that, that you'd expect, including Woods Hole, oceanographic. So uh, as part of this, to make, uh, to, uh, so to, the, to the point then that, that uh, those who would fund us inside the Beltway and those who we serve locally want to know how their funds are, are spent. And so part of the job that we have at, at, at NIFA is to, to ensure uh, or to increase the visibility of the science that we, do, that we do that will have outcomes. So we are more outcome-oriented, a little bit more like the NIH, who has outcome-based programs. They're looking for solutions to, to cancer and, and fertility and, and aging and so forth. And that's what, and so we focused ourselves on those, on those outcomes. But we've also done something different that, that I think, uh, I, I hope you respond to well here, because I, I think you have, otherwise you wouldn't have the grants that you receive. And that we, is that we, have, we, we, we want coordination. We want the researchers to, be, to know what it means to go from the laboratory beyond into a development state, stage, and then we want the extension and education folks to get to the deployment stage. So we want R plus D plus D. That's usually, it could be R plus E plus E, E with extension, E with education, but in other words, get it out of the laboratory into, in, into those, that will have impact. And uh, there's an, so there's this in, in, emphasis on integration of research, education, and outreach and extension, and this is something that's not part of DOE it's, or, or, or USDA or uh, um, NSF. It's a larger part of, of, uh, of NIH, but we have something that these other agencies don't have. We have extension linked in to our mission area. And that ability to translate from the, from the fundamental knowledge to the farmer's field or fork is something that's quite unique with the USDA. And, and that, uh, we, we, have the, we have the NIH now trying to mimic that and having new programs that, that they're going to try to deploy into the community as well. So we should be pleased with that and we should also employ it in our programs that, of, of research to outcomes. There's a greater emphasis on multi and transdisciplinary team uh, in, in, uh, in these problem solving uh, programs. Um, and I was pleased with the Igert, at the IGERT discussion yesterday to hear uh, how many of the students and postdocs and faculty are committed to, to translating uh, the, the, the research from their multiple, multiple disciplinary teams or having two or three faculty mentors on a single project or in the training of a student. That's the new way forward that many of us think will take us to the, uh, the capability of solving the problems that are not... Uh, that are no more that are no longer simply one dimension, and uh, and I'm quite convinced that if we do this right, that we will require solutions that are that are regional, regional, and that re require and involve multi institutions. And I would urge you to think about multi institutions beyond just the universities, but into the into the colleges that come to do our training that think about who are, where the next students are or that are the tribal leaders in, our land, in the lands that are owned by the, by the native tribes or that represent another demographic of, of rural America. They are as important in, in agriculture as those of us who are the privileged and have had educational opportunities in the past. 
So this commitment at, at my first all-hands meeting when I got to, to, the, to NIFA made that point. Our dedication must be as equally as strong to the Hispanic Latino community as it is to the non-Latino. It must be committed to those in the, in the tribal regions as well as that serve the, primarily the African-American community through the 1890s colleges. So uh, this we require, a, a rededication, I think, or a recognition in this country, which, has, which we talk about but we don't know how to implement yet, is, uh, is preparedness. And the STEM curriculum must, must also uh, sort of be, be K through university. It starts early, and it's critical to the long-term success of what we do. You can't imagine that it's not. We also need, as I said before, to target the growing populations of geographies and demographies that, that represent the U.S. society. And that training becomes uh, critically important to our future. This is uh, the, the, uh, uh, another figure that, that was shared uh, from the Academy and shows the changes in U.S. population by race and ethnicity between uh, 1990 and projected to 2050. And so those of you who run laboratories, those of you who recruit students, those of you who administer universities, have a changing, changing demography and, and the changing population of students that you will choose from. Now, California is in, the for, is in fortunate in many ways because you, you've had a diverse, a diverse uh, uh, community for uh, many years, now only being recognized in the in Midwest with the Latino uh, communities in, uh, in, of, of immigrants. But that change should tell us where our next scientists will come from, where our next students will come from, and who will be the leaders not only of, of, the, of, uh, of, of those who produce the food, but will be part of the, of the economy that comes from food and agriculture. So as we do our education, we need to take that in mind. And as, if you do the K through 12, that brings additional uh, challenges to developing curriculum that's equally as translatable to languages and to cultures as we can so that we engage as, as many, as wide an area as we possibly can. So I'll, I'll leave this part with that question. What should our public agriculture universities look like in the next 150 years? If we've accomplished this much in the first 150, what will the next 150 be? And how will you decide what it is? In the context of global economy, in the context of changing climates, which bring maybe different population fluxes and movements of people. Certainly will we'll change the way we ship agriculture around the globe. We'll have disease pressures here that we didn't have before. Uh, I am a plant pathologist after all. Think about diseases. Uh, those of you who are, are in, in the hot temperature zones, um, think about the, the, uh, the water and, and the temperature issues. And you have to solve those in the context of this institution or an institution that this becomes as you look forward to what the next 150 years of, of education would look like, as well as the global economy and its forces. So to, to do that, you, we ask ourselves, where are the resources to come from? Not just for the new buildings, not just for the new hires. Um, tuition of students rises, and, and, and you ask, how will we keep, make sure we have the diversity in our universities that are necessary under changing tuition, tuition uh, Boundaries, and and uh, and you ask yourself whether we're getting the message right. It's, it's absolutely undisputed un, un, um, that the research progress has been phenomenal. 
fundamental research that what we've discovered is just remarkable. The real message is, uh, who cares, and so what? I'm selling like a development officer, a development officer, don't I? Selling your science so that somebody cares about it, so you can get a donor. And that's what we're asking. We're asking for Congress to care, because they're the ones that will determine whether or not we have the resources to do what we need to do next. Extension is successful. It's been a wonderful part of USDA and uh, land grant. Uh, uh, success. But is it well prepared for the current and the future trends? Is it prepared for the changes in agriculture globally? What is it now that it wasn't 10 years ago and what will it be? Because it's the, it's the arm that reaches into the community, but has it changed enough? Is it as nimble as it should be? Are our, are our extension workers thinking the same way that we think at the global level? Uh, Again, uh, to re- a reminder that, that we're quite con- convicted that focusing on those goals and the outcomes and integration of R plus D plus D uh, is important. It gains attention and it gains approval when we have outcomes. And, and those outcomes are important to those who provide us resources. And in many ways, we're developing storylines to the work that we do. I mean, it's a great, it was a, it was a, it was a nice part of that today was talking about the, the future of of wheat and barley and uh, of conifer genomics and biomass and, and renewability and sustainability. Getting those messages right uh, so that anybody can understand them is important. And, and unless we as scientists learn how to communicate, at least 50% of us ought to be able to communicate the message as clearly as possible. It would be nice to have 90%, but maybe not everybody is as prepared. But we need it to face those constituents. So there's been uh, a great return on investment and high impact on, on GDP. We are an enormously important and successful part of the economy. There's a high degree of need for what we do. There's a high degree of interest in what we do and of the future that depends on what we do. It's, it's absolutely gratifying to see undergraduates interested in, in service to humanity, to service to the globe by working in this field. It's, it, it's a, I haven't seen this kind of thing since we marched in the 70s. You know, it, it's really, it, it's, it's nice. It makes us feel that, that we are in the right space, but that space is getting more crowded and has more needs. There's a lot of interest. But there is a weak commitment to increase funding. We just have to admit that the last 20 years, we've been treading water or going down. In nearly 20 years ago, uh, we had proponents of, for science and agriculture, led by Dick Luger, Senator Luger from Indiana, proposed the formation of the National Research Initiative or its progenitor, but a competitive grants program. It set at that time, 20 years ago, that there should be an authorized, the authorized amount was $500 million. When I took this job in the fall of 2009, the number was 201. It floated between 150 and 200 for 20 years. It's not that you're not doing great stuff. It's just that something's wrong in the way we provide the message or the messengers that deliver other kinds of message. And unless we get it right, we're going to be stuck at 250, 260, maybe 300 
unless we learn how to make our message more um, unified. And I think some of it lies in these next bullet points. We speak in agriculture with such fractured voice, and we don't have harmony amongst ourselves, and we have discordant songs as a consequence. Whether you're in poultry, or in blueberries, or in natural resource management, or 4-H clubs, or economics, we all think what we've all been speaking our, our own pieces, I, I, I sense, and not speaking for who we are. And we are food and agriculture. And as I often say, all we do is feed people. And so you have to ask yourself about why this voice isn't strong. What is it? And I think it's a discordancy amongst all the pieces that we, that we represent that has hurt us over and over. We are so confident in our ability to go to the Hill, convince our senator or a representative that we need $75,000 to get this piece of equipment. So we go in one at a time. And uh, we go in as units that, that ask for things, and somebody else comes in, and, and then the pork growers go, and, uh, and the uh, small crops groups go, and so forth and so on. So who does Congress want to in, uh, listen to and why? What is it that, that they are responsive to and, and why should they listen? And I think that's something that's worth a beta analysis and, and uh, see if we can't find a way forward. And the other question is that I, I think is even more important uh, because of the European situation and what we've watched Europe in the last 20 years, is the U.S. ready for agri- the agriculture of the future? Europe has decided a different way. I was stunned at a recent meeting that I had at the embassy in, in Paris, and the farmers' union said, well, we recognize that we're not ever going to be able to grow agriculture in France. And that would never occur to us in the U.S. not to have agriculture vital and an important part of the economy. Uh, and, and, that was, and, and, and France has more of the arable land in, your, in Europe than any other single country. And yet, the attitude is different than it is here. So we need to know what we want in agriculture of the future. We need to be prepared for it. We need to uh, educate for it and to, and to pay the research that's necessary to keep it going in the future in the context of global competition. And, and the, this list, I think, is the one that I'm most interested in, in in terms of our future. Global competition, global trade and World Trade Organization challenges, changing economics, sustainability of natural resources, and science and technology uh, that is necessary to provide to get us that increase in total factor productivity that we talked about earlier. Then there are those things that, that are policy-related as well, federal policies towards research and technology development, intellectual property management, biosafety policies for GE materials, Farming subsidies, all of those things need to be addressed. Those are policy issues, by and large. And in order to make that uh, the agriculture of the future, we need the policy, have the decisions of the, of the top, as well as the second bullet there. And, and right now, we are privileged to live uh, on, with, a, with an administration that recognizes the importance of science. We have a privilege to have Dr. Dr. John Holdren as a, at the head of the Office of Science, science and Technology Policy people who care about whether or not the science that we have invested in is worth the investment. And when we are innovative, are interested in finding that go out into the economy. We, it, it's a real change. Um, 
on a regular basis, we are meeting with, in, with a group of those interested in the emerging technologies and the policies that will be necessary to get those, whether it's nanotechnology or, or whatever that nextology is that is science-based and we want it in service to humanity. We make, make sure that, that what we've invested in is, uh, sees an outcome. Again, a little bit more, a little unlike the European situation where there's a lot of investment not a lot of payoff that goes into new technologies, especially in our sector. So back to the first question. Can supportive sciences for agriculture prosper inside the Beltway? Uh, it's a low likelihood in the, in the current economic situation. And I think we've, we've got a hurdle that, that we have to recognize unless we get unified voices. And, and you are the voices that we have to hear. And not to me but the secretary, to the head of Office of Science and Technology Policy, to the head of OMB, and to your congressman. Now, many of us have gotten NIH grants over the years, and when you do that, uh, you get these, you get these entreaties. In, uh, we are entreated every time there's a challenge to the NIH budget. Write your congressman. And they get tens of thousands of answers. I have yet to know whether we have more than 100, maybe 500 when there's a challenge to the, NI, when the USDA budget. Where are we? It's part of this fracturing. Well, maybe they're not going to support my project this year, so I won't write. That's not the point. The point is, unless we stay together as a unit, as a, as a group that believes that what we do is terribly important to society and to the future of economy and to the future of, the global, of global health, until we realize that we're all in this together, we'll be fractured. And Congress doesn't respond well to fractured voices, unless by individual earmarks. And that's not helping. There's only some, and, and we now know that some of us cheered when we heard that there are no earmarks uh, in this Congress. We'd like to see that re reality. And there's a low likelihood without developing a vision, without someone, some group, some program that helps us to know what to invest in, helps you to know where your faculty uh, 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 should be focused, helps you to see how best, where, where to hire next. And I think that's the, the vision that, that's not yet here. We don't have an energy policy for the U.S. government, and, and we've been asking one for years. We certainly don't have an agriculture policy that is looking forward. I think we need these things to be addressed. If they do, I'm optimistic about increasing the funding in a continuous way for agriculture. But unless we get some of these things fixed or addressed, I, I think we have a low probability. And, and that's a shame because you guys are good. Other universities are good. We have scientists that care, that, that really want to put their energies into solutions, and, and, I, and we have much to offer. I think it's, it's up to us to make sure our voices are heard. And if we don't, then we'll, we, we will continue as we are. But this is a great opportunity with this administration and with, with, the, with the advances in science that have been invested in over the last 20 years of, of the new sciences that have driven us to the new bio, to to recognize that the new biology for the 21st century can be enacted and that we are, we are the sector of economy that should be able to pull this together. We have the support of our science community. We need the support of those in Washington as well. Thank you. Thank you, Roger, so much. Uh, we are moving to the next phase of this um, lecture. We are going to have a panel of four faculty, 
and I will um, ask them to come forward and I will explain in a few minutes how we are going to do this. Uh, Jonathan London is a, an assistant professor in human and community development and director of the Center for Regional Change. And Jonathan is coming forward. Uh, Elizabeth Mitchum is cooperative extension specialist in the Department of Plant Sciences. Anita Oberbauer, professor and chair of animal science. And Pamela, Pamela Ronald, professor of plant pathology. So we'll start with Jonathan. Thank you very much. So thank you, uh, Chancellor, for convening us in such an innovative forum. And um, thank you to Dr. Beachy for uh, really a thought-provoking presentation, as well as your engagement with us over the last uh, two days on campus. Um, the uh, what I was quite interested in, and, and really took as a uh, to heart in your as a challenge, was this idea of the speaking with unified voices. And uh, I hope that we can model some of that uh, unified voice, or at least a four-point uh, harmony today. Um, as a social scientist, uh, I'm very interested in uh, your comments and in the NIFA portfolio uh, about the, the place of rural communities and rural regions in, uh, in the vision of USDA and in the broader project of sustainable development nationally and internationally. Uh, I appreciate the attention to rural communities in um, NIFA's uh, uh, economics and community development, uh, national emphasis area, the new institute, uh, for youth, family, and community, and uh, and related efforts, uh, so I'm I'm interested to to uh, hear you talk a little bit about how um, how the social and social equity dimensions of sustainability uh, play into this bold vision that you're calling forth. Uh, questions like how to improve access to economic opportunities by the most marginalized rural residents, as, as you mentioned, uh, farm workers, immigrants, Native American tribes and nations, uh, low-income whites, and so on, and how to mitigate the disproportionate environmental and social impacts borne by these same populations. At the same time, how to um, better engage and, uh, and to uh, value the, the resources, the wealth that these same populations have and the ways that they can really be stakeholders in this uh, new agriculture, this new vision for rural community. So uh, I'm not going to talk about some of the work that we're doing to keep in time. But, uh, but so I want to I then just go to right, uh, right to the question of um, how could you, could you elaborate a little bit about the, the vision of, of NIFA and USDA in addressing the, the dynamic change in our rural communities and regions and what kind of um, changes do you see as necessary in the land-grant universities to best respond to that kind of change and best partner with, with USDA going forward? Thanks. Uh, thanks, Jonathan. The, the, um, one of the things that, that I often talk about is the commitment of the, of the secretary to rural, to rural economy and rural prosperity. Um, and that starts with, with education and, and, and access, which is so, uh, so often lacking in those communities. So as part of the, the mission, part of his vision and, and implementation in, the, in this first year and a half or two years is to, is to have better connectivity mm. into communities that, have, that don't have access to, to, to information uh, which, through which comes better education, 
and but more equally as important is is access to to market mm. if they, uh, to know where markets are yeah. if there if there is innovation and uh, if you take the example of, of uh, who will grow what kind of biomass or produce the kind of pellets for biofuels or or might have a native uh, plant species that or animal species that would have special utility mm-hmm. in agriculture that that information has to be uh, available and then looking outward for markets so so that's the first thing is making sure we have connectivity and, mm-hmm. and that people are, are linked and that's a major priority um, of several parts of the, of the department the engagement with other communities uh, is coming because part of our message has part of our what's been missing is a recognition of our responsibility some of us are aware of the recent suits that were settled uh, mm-hmm. by this administration that yeah. had been hanging over us for years, the Keep Siegel case in the case of Native Americans and, mm-hmm. and the other in, in the African American situation. Uh, and bringing the equi- making those whole mm. is the first step. Because un- until the, the, the case of, of accessibility of the tribal nations to, to the services of the department were equalized with those that are available elsewhere, there was this barrier. Yeah. And so if we look at how to, how to engage the disenfranchised of the past, we finally have settled some scores mm-hmm. that have been 25 to 30 years in the making. Right. And, and we, I'd say that we, our, our challenges now are, are uh, having them lead us mm-hmm. and, and that we become instruments as land grants. And one of the things I would encourage land grant institutions to be uh, less land grantish. And, and more regionally supportive of those that have had have, have need this, need the cooperation mm-hmm. that we are, and we're not just focused on what we think is good, right. but those communities that are around us. And remember, all of these are tribal nations, and they de- they they deserve the respect that comes with tribe tribes. And how to deal with tribes is something that that. I'm stunned that some schools know how to do it very well and are welcomed in the campus, and others just. Don't there are not respected, so we, we need to know how to do that better. Great, thank you. Very All much. Right, thank you. We'll go to um, Elizabeth next. Thank you. Um, thank you, uh, Chancellor Katehi, and uh, thank you also to uh, Dean Van Alphen for the invitation to participate in this uh, event. I appreciate the opportunity to share my perspective on the topic that uh, has been presented today by Dr. Beachy. Um, we also enjoyed uh, visiting with you on the tour today. It was uh, very enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were asked to give a bit of our perspective on whether support for agricultural research can survive inside the Beltway. And I, I greatly appreciated your thoughts and comments. Uh, to add to that, um, from my perspective ahead of the uh, presentation, I, f- I felt that it's important to try to bring the benefits to urban populations uh, since our our congressional representatives are mostly representing Mm -hmm. the urban people. And one of the things that the urban population is concerned about, well, there certainly does seem to be a big push for sustainability and organic food. And if we're going to be successful in either of these areas, we need to have additional research. We need to have much more information about how food is produced to be able to produce it in a sustainable way. You, you can't just spray and pray. You have to understand the biology. And so we need more research to do that well. Um, we need also, as you mentioned, I was very happy to hear that, we need to reduce post-harvest losses if we're going to have a sustainable system. Uh, we currently lose 30 to 
50% of what we produce. And, but agricultural research actually only supports, only about 5% of agricultural research goes into the post-harvest area. So um, I think we could do more in that area worldwide, including in the U.S., I also believe that having a strong agriculture in the U.S. is important to our national security, and I think this could be a point perhaps that could resonate with urban populations. I think we want to always feel self-sufficient in our food production and not feel beholden to other parts of the world um, where relationships can sometimes change um, unexpectedly. Of course, we want food to remain inexpensive here in the U.S. We have the luxury of having very inexpensive food. Uh, if we were to see uh, continued increases in food prices, we'd have even a greater widespread um, hunger in the U.S. And, and, of course, we certainly want to avoid um, shortages and possible panic, although hopefully that's far away. Um, you addressed a bit the issue of food security and uh, agriculture around the world. Uh, I think in terms of diplomacy and developing peace around the world, food security is a, a key topic. And if we're going to um, assist farmers around the world in learning how to grow food and uh, develop their own income and improve their livelihoods, we must have the expertise within our own um, universities to go out and, and, and share that information. Of course, the other issue that really resonates with urban populations is, is health, and um, we need to continue to, uh, to work to provide uh, healthy food choices for people, to make it uh, easier for people to make those good choices. Uh, one area would be to improve the flavor quality of our fruits and vegetables, so maybe consumers would eat more than the two servings they sometimes eat which includes French fries, which is very sad. Um, we need to improve the convenience of food, uh, healthy foods for people so it's easier for them to eat them. At the same time, keeping the cost reasonable. So all these things um, would resonate, I, I would hope, with urban populations, and they're all things that require us to continue uh, researching and developing uh, new uh, information and new approaches. Um, so to, to follow on with that, um, my question, I guess, to you, um, I, I do some work in the development area and horticulture development around the world, and I would like to know whether USDA has been asked to serve a more global role, a uh, more global stakeholder audience as part of its mission, uh, as part of Feed the Future, for example, and if so, how do you respond to concerns by uh, farmers and other stakeholders in the U.S. about that shift in mission? Um, good question. All, all the other points you made were really very, very important as well. But this, let's address the one on, on uh, global food security and what role USDA will play. Um, as I mentioned in my talk yesterday, some of you heard me, so I hate to repeat it all, but it's a bigger audience today. Uh, there's, there's been a um, – there's – uh, Senator Bumper, uh, a number of years ago, for different reasons, uh, uh, um, placed into a, into a bill, a farm bill, I believe, a restriction on on how much American technology can can be used to establish uh, sort of competition for American agriculture products in other countries, and 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 it, it turns out that uh, that's quite quite outmoded now. It's it's not an issue that not the issue that it was when it was instituted, and, and we think that that there's an opportunity to take that clause out of 
out of farm, farm, out of farm legislation so that, that we can be perhaps more engaged than, than we were in the past. Nevertheless, the, the major goal of the U.S. Department of Agriculture is to ensure the success of American agriculture. We shouldn't forget that. But in, in our agency, what we've asked, uh, and, and you will see it on the new grant requests for next year, uh, a statement there that asks you to identify if there, is, if there is dual function or multifunction of the research that you do that might benefit not only American agriculture, but international agriculture. Our goal is eventually to take that, that information that is provided by your applications and help to create linkages between what you do and some utility and potential uh, use in developing economies. So who decides what developing economy we will work with? As you said earlier, um, uh, we've had a past history of investing and then not investing, investing and not investing in specific countries, depending upon local situations. That's discouraging because you can't establish an institution in three years and pull out. And, I mean, you know the problems. And, and so what, what uh, we are doing with the involvement of, of the U.S. Agency for International Development is becoming a primary partner with USAID to sponsor research and education and training, both short-term and long-term, on, uh, as, a, as a partner with USAID in Feed the Future. In fact, yesterday and today and tomorrow, a group of of scientists and, and uh, policymakers are meeting at Purdue University to help us to know what the right agenda is for research that will be done in developing economies. But USAID has also determined that, there, that, that we can't help everybody. We don't have, there's not enough resources to help every country, so there have been, we, we've asked those countries to self-identify. You know, and that self-identification means that they need to, uh, to, to, to commit within their own government a percentage of their GDP towards agriculture and food, and they have to and be willing to work with, uh, to, to uh, guide USAID and USDA in meeting the challenges in their, in their agriculture. So we need their commitment. So these are country-led plans, unlike the plans of the past, which we would go in and, and say, why don't you grow wheat? Why don't you grow sugar beets? You can sell them someplace. It's, it's them driving the boat. It's them setting priorities. It's them saying we will put this much money towards the training and building of institutions and we need U.S. help to get us there faster. It's, it's a different philosophy with this administration and it's the one that many of us who have worked in international agriculture for, for, uh, as we have, uh, have recognized works. It's participatory and it's, it's, it's much far less colonialistic. It's, it's really partnership. And, and that's the change that, that is in USAID now, specifically because we recognize that food availability is part of national security. I, um, in my previous role at, at the Danforth Plan Science Center, I had several uh, meetings and opportunities to, to meet with military leaders who want to know what we can expect in food security that they might employ in their own planning of, of strategies in country. Pretty remarkable. You have the Department of Defense recognizing how important food security is in, in national security. So it's a different day. And again, it, it, it should tell all of us that we're in the right space in science. We are in the place that, to, to make contributions in lots of different ways. All right, thank you. What I would like to do is to remind us all of the, of time, the time constraints. <laughs> That I was like, three so and a half minutes. In. I, I would like to um, 
Um, well, it's very exciting. Of course, the discussion is very interesting, but I have the horrible role here to mm. keep everybody uh, within the time limit. So um, I would like to go to Anita, and Anita, please. <laughs> I will try and speak very <laughs> Two quickly. Two minutes for this statement and one for the question. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I first would like to echo the thanks to the Chancellor and for the University for this opportunity to listen to such a great presentation. And Dr. Beachy, I applaud your comments on the need for an integrated scientific approach. But I would also like to argue for a unified voice for farming systems. And that is an integrated system with, that includes both animal agriculture and plants because they are both necessary to manage the nation's resources. And as you know, I'm sure, animal agriculture comprises well over 50% of the total U.S. agricultural economy. And we know we have a need for greater efficiency for production, and it's coupled with um, necessary improvements for long-term sustainability. And the public does seem pretty complacent that they expect food to be there without much thought to it. And so we need to make a unified voice in illustrating that animal agriculture does play an integral role in any kind of sustainable farming system, especially though in the United States when we talk about animals, they're essential for the utilization of crop byproducts, they add value to the agricultural um, crops, they enable the use of land that you can't use in crop, normal crop production, and often um, they provide the opportunity for uh, maintaining the integrity of the natural resources by preventing urbanization when you have ranches in place. And they contribute to the national energy security by fueling, um, by providing the biodigestible energy that's going on, for example, in the um, production for that's planned for the UCD's West Village. And used appropriately, they can um, reduce chemical fertilizer and produce, they produce high quality nutritional desirable protein. And so we need this integrated, unified voice, as you mentioned. And given that there's this critical position of animal ag in a holistic agricultural production system and maintaining a diversified landscape, how best should we improve and convey these research needs for animals, especially when um, the political system and the populace and government funding agencies don't necessarily appreciate animal agricultural research. Um, you know where I'm going with this, uh, the lot, uh, especially in light of the last 2010 AFRI RFAs targeted a very I thought small you'd let me off the hook. percentage. <laughs> targeted, uh, targeted food animal research was only 5.6% of the budget. So how can we present a unified voice? Well, fortunately, you have large, um, large interests behind you that are supportive. And one of the things that, that has, uh, you're right about the, about the, the low uh, total amount for animal ag agriculture research last year. It's been changed this year. You'll be pleased to know. Um, and as there are more resources that go in, there will be more resources available. And, and one of the things that, that we, we have a challenge of, of how, to, um, how to rationalize it, one of the, thing, uh, the, the priorities, one of the things that, that is in your, in, in your space is the fact that, that those who are animal producers are very vocal. 
they are major supporters of agriculture on the hill, and, and they go in with their one voice. What I'd like to, have, like to challenge you with is that this should be a voice for all of food and agriculture, not a voice for animal agriculture or plant agriculture or forestry or natural resource management, but, but a support of the system which is successful in producing food and agriculture for, for U.S. and for the world. So uh, the, the uh, excitement of the science, which I, which I join, uh, which I'm pleased with I, as, a, as a, the guy who likes to follow why diseases are formed and why they're solved. I've seen the great progress in, in, in some of the epidemiology and, and, uh, and treatments and vaccines and, and genomics work that gives you disease resistance and you have new faculty members that are coming with that expertise as well. Uh, you, you really have, uh, we, we have the right mix, I think, of, of interest and uh, support from industry. That rationalization of research uh, that is validated by the private sector helps in, enormously. And to show that there are ways to leverage our investments through grants with, those, with the funds that come from those who would use it is a validation. And uh, though we don't want to make that a condition of all grants, there are some that, that it, it's helpful to know about. So as you make applications, having that validation from the private sector is a good thing. Um, but I take your point of the, the importance of animal agriculture to our, to, our own, to our own diet and to the economy of, of U.S. agriculture. There's there with the, uh, we have not built a systems approach in, in the CAP grants in the same way in animal agriculture as we have in plants. Uh, not to say that I mean, there are some in disease models. Um, at the same time, we'd like to have that. We'd like to make we we need that. We also need this this part of what is is um, has been seen as challenging, and that are that is the the food health safety issues that have come with pre-harvest and post-harvest contamination of, of animals and of eggs and others. And we need to find ways to show that value that we bring by solutions to those very key, very important food safety issues. And I think together with that, solving those things through our food safety initiatives is really part of animal biology, I'd argue. And so maybe it's not quite as bad as you would make it out to be. All right, thank you. Um, we'll go to Pamela. Thank you, Chancellor Katie, for putting together this wonderful presentation and to Carolyn de la Pena and the uh, Humanities Institute for your work. And thank you, Roger, for your support of science for agriculture. Um, and you presented very stark numbers on the agricultural productivity gap in the U.S. and around the globe. Um, and as you and Beth indicated, we can uh, close that gap by uh, reducing losses. And, but as a geneticist, it's clear we also need the most advanced genetic sciences to adapt our crop to changes, future challenges. And these include the limits of arable land. There's not much arable land left, so we need to grow more food on less land. Uh, there's fourfold less fresh water available per person. Uh, many of our rivers no longer flow to the ocean, and um, many of our aquifers have, have been depleted. And there's also the predicted effects of climate change. There will be drought in many regions of the world and enhanced flooding in other parts of the world. We're also going to see increased losses to pests and disease. Many of these threats are, are really uh, critical. So for example, stem rust, which threatens uh, global uh, wheat 
production and um, thank you for your award to George Dukoski. So we can solve that problem here. We'll take care of that for you at UC Davis. Um, but there's many other challenges. The New Yorker just um, had a wonderful article this week on um, threats to banana production. So banana is the fourth staple uh, crop around the world. It's also important to import crop um, for the United States. So it's clear that adjust, addressing these challenges requires a commitment of many nations. And it's also clear that we really need the best uh, science possible, the advanced, most advanced science. And yet it seems that there is a, some sort of communication gap in a way that um, perhaps um, many Americans are, are very well fed. They don't uh, recognize the challenges uh, placed upon farmers. And um, I think there's also um, in somewhat s some sort of um, fear of the most advanced science. So sometimes we see the tea parties, tea partiers of the left, I think, that um, sometimes have um, answers that are not integrated, uh, integrated approaches. So I think my question then is, you know, really, could you talk about why there is this erosion of scientific support and lack of interest um, from uh, the congressional agencies and even from most of the public when this research is so vitally important? Uh, and specifically around the, the disease and, and pest issues, is that, that the one that, that, that's in particular or Well, I think also just in general where we see sort of this rising tide of um, almost fear of agricultural research, that it's something separate from uh, really what we're trying to do uh, to feed the world. Yeah, there's, I, I, that's a good question. It's a complex question because the, with the changes in, as you mentioned, in, um, in climate, and, and growth of population and, and diminishing resources in some parts and enhancing in others. Uh, the issues of, of, of why we've become so complacent in the U.S. with our food availability is, it seems to be, an, 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 at least it appears to be an, an urban, suburb, an, an urban rural gap. You, several of you have made the point that many of our representatives, represent, uh, those in Congress represent the urban areas. And they're, they're interested in one kind of thing, and that might be fresh vegetables, or uh, they don't care where the bread comes from, but they want the, the vegetables to grow next door, and a good thing. Uh, but, but there's a limited, uh, a limited uh, understanding of the rest of the complexity of the system. It, and it, if that's an urban-rural um, um, problem, uh, we have a, a real, a larger gap in knowledge than I think really belies the, the value of, of uh, rural America. You know, our, our secretary reminds us that the, although we're only 20% of the, of the population lives in what are called rural areas, 46% of those that serve in the military come from rural areas. They are the heart of the economy and agriculture. They're part of the, of the ethos of the hardworking American. They, they are an important component, and unless we find ways, and so from his perspective, we need to make sure that there is a vital economy that is maintained in those rural areas. But, but I don't know if there, if, how, how to address the issue that the frustration that I feel, as you do, about valuing the, the production of food and agriculture, food as part of agriculture, is, is is invisible. It's it's behind a smoke screen, 
the only thing we get complaints about are whether or not there's an odor that comes from a hog farm uh, or that, that that cow might have had a different pasture and it doesn't, the milk doesn't taste quite as good as it did last year. Um, and, and without recognizing the complexities that come with, with the, um, the challenges of producing the feed that produces the cattle. Uh, and and I, I, I've struggled with, with this urban-rural piece, knowing what Congress sees and, and wants to, to bless through their largesse and through their, through their budgetary process, and, and recognize that while the senators are able to, to, to make their points because they're a two per state, and you, it, the, the, the percentage in, in the House is, is very different. Uh, so if, you, if you'd asked me what are the changes that I've had, maybe it would be that everybody gets a bu bus ride from L.A. to New York or mm -hmm. L.A. to Washington. Or L.A. to Davis. Or, <laughs> no, no, no. We want them to go all the way across. We want them to see what the rest of the world is. We do too much over, over top. And I think that, that, that lack of connectivity is, is a challenge. So how do you get it there? Maybe it is through the, the urbanization of agriculture and the, urban, and the agroecology that we're talking about in our urban areas. Maybe it is the forestry and the green places and, and, the, uh, and, the, and the return and the use of brownfields for food production in those urban areas. Maybe there's a start that has to come there that, 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 uh, that is more visible as they go back to their constituencies. Uh, I, I'm not sure that I have an answer for that question. The one that, that bothers me the most is, is why we aren't selling, why the message doesn't play well. Uh, is it the right, wrong song? Is it the wrong lyrics? Is it the wrong, the wrong voice? We need a, we, we've needed a Carl Sagan for agriculture for, uh, for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. The billions and billions of, of stars is now the billions and billions of calories, and it's not just quantity. Of, it's not just quantity of calories. It's qualities of calories. So I I, I think that I'm as, as befuddled as others about how to make that change. But I think we don't talk about it and see if somebody smarter than the rest of us can come up with a with a, a plan that makes sure that we get the message in. We'll have the the, the opportunity to to invest. But that investment can't be done only by us. It's done by consumers, and it's done by those who bring us, the, uh, that take the outcomes out. So I, I, I noodle over this issue. I'm a, as a plant pathologist, people expected that I would go in and enrich plant pathology. That's important, too. It, that's important, too. <laughs> but, but I use that as a point because the, the issues are, 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 are the, uh, the reality is that the private sector is investing little, because the disease pressures haven't been great here, to the point that in the middle between what we do and what gets to the consumer is, is, is economics and business. And that linkage between what we do and what, what is needed has to be filtered through that piece. And hopefully there are some bright people, young people out here who will change that middle so it's, it's, it's more to what, what we think should be part of the economy of food and agriculture, part of the diet part of the animal health, part of the animal welfare, and, and, and all the pieces that we care about in our, in our academic institutions, that these, that, that these new generation will bring us new ideas and new tools that, uh, that will show the difference in what we say we want to do and what we actually deliver to the, to the public that supports what we do. I, I think there is a way to do this. 
Um, the Chancellor and I have had a, a, a couple of good discussions, but we're not done. We need an input from you all, too, to know what, what best approach we might make to have not only colleagues in learned places with the quality of this institution, but those who are less privileged, um, that they engage, that we engage them as well. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I would like to thank the panel also for um, their the discussion and questions. Um, we have um, a, only very few minutes left, but I would like to um, have two questions from the audience. So, okay. <laughs> um, I will go down to the last row, the individual. That is the first question. I think that's Andy. I cannot see him very well, but Andy Waterhouse. Roger, thank you very much for your presentation. Um, and your challenge to show unified voice, I think, is something we can all think about and, and address. But one of the things I've seen at USDA is over the years, the priorities seem to change dramatically in response to various pressures, I assume political pressures. And I think if you want to get all of us working together with a unified voice, we have to see, well, I was going to ask then, how can USDA come up with a priority scheme that balances all these needs in, in such a way that we all feel that we, we won't be cut out down the road? In other words, if, we want, if you want us all to speak together and a unified voice. We need to have all the different... You heard two folks mention today that animal, um, animal science and processing sort of feel left out. And so what principles can we base our priorities on that will help um, us all work together? I, that's, a, that's a great question. And, and uh, those of you who have, who have looked at USDA or you look to NEF, now NEFA for, for support, you notice that those priorities change with time because there's not enough, you have to, we have to sort of pick and choose. We don't have the luxury of a billion dollars or five billion dollars. We can only say this year we can support this and this year we can support this. And, and because there are so many crops, because there are so many cropping systems, because there are so many insects or diseases, because there, are, there is so much to be done, you simply can't do it all. And somebody needs, we need a prioritization pathway. And if that priority, and so I've, I've been asking as I, I speak to groups of, um, let's say, producers or, or, or uh, scientists, I, I say, so I talk to the Crop Science Society, the Soil Science Societies, and say, tell me what the major priority is that, if solved, would help all of agriculture. Tell me what that one thing is or two or three things are so that we can then implement the fundamental science and the applied science that solves that problem. And, and the ability of the fractured voices to be unified enough to come in with a priority list that makes sense is, is, is gone. It's not there. And, and I, I think in the case that we don't simply have a human genome or one genome, we've got lots of genomes. And, and where is the investment best placed? Is it best placed in that market sector that is the export market sector or in the local market sector? Is it in... The, the fresh fruits and vegetables, or fresh vegetables, or is it in the commodities? And those priorities need, are, are, need to be set by a rationalization that puts us in the context of the global economy. And, I, and none of that's happening. So we do little pieces at a time and say, we're going to fund this this year and fund this next year. 
Now, what, what, what I personally want to see is that, that we have in these CAP grants, these larger grants, that attitude. But then the foundational science that makes everything possible in all of agriculture, the foundational science, needs to grow. So for that reason, what we've said is that, 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 as our, uh, that for, for the budget in, in the competitive grants program, we'll have a 30-70 split. And you can argue with me why isn't it 50-50 or 70-30, but it's 30% towards foundational data, a gathering of foundational information, and, and 70% towards these CAP grants. And the CAP grants also had a lot of foundational work, fundamental work in them as well, as, as seen by the two grants that were announced today. Now, uh, but that's still not very much money when the pool, the total pool is $262 million. That pool needs to be at least authorized amount of $700 million, and it really ought to be treble that. And then you have the capability to address the problems that are there. And, with, and so it comes down again to how do you prioritize when you have limited resources? Who do you, how do you choose that market sector that you want to make sure is successful? And, and rather than peanut buttering the money around to every little, to every little project that comes through, which doesn't, uh, it doesn't allow the focus, then you, it, it, it makes it more difficult to achieve goals. And I come back to this issue of achievements and goal attainment to show that what we have invested in does make a difference. So that's a long way of saying, uh, it's, and I started this by, earlier by, by showing a slide saying that there's no doubt that the science, our capabilities are enormous. Uh, but, but with the limited resources, we can only address, use that information in certain ways and certain, to a certain extent or in, in certain project types. So it, it's, it's, your, your, your question is really, the answer is really there, there are so many important needs and the priority setting that, that we have comes from listening to stakeholders and then putting that in the context of, global, of, the, of the needs for the next five years or the data needed for the next five years. It can't be as broad as we want it to be. All right, thank you. Next, uh, Charlie. You can have mine, Charlie. <laughs> no, seriously, come on. Roger, have you considered a collaboration or partnership with NIH on a theme of food for health hmm. and prevent disease rather than treat it and reduce health care costs, all of which I think could be very saleable to Congress and would close the urban-rural gap and address all levels of society? Uh, that's a great question. I'm glad. That's a nice one. If we only have two, two questions, that's a good one to finish on. Because the answer is uh, that we started. Uh, one of the, we we did, did, in fact, do that. I, I know Dr. Collins. And so one of the first uh, opportunities I had, I, I sat with Dr. Collins and, and talked about the, the obvious linkage between nutrition, health, well-being, and, um, and so forth. And, and as a consequence of those meetings, we, uh, he has uh, asked several of his chiefs to meet with a group of us from NSF and a group of us from NIFA. So we are starting three-way talks amongst the agencies to find out how we, use, how we go beyond the genomics of the cattle, beyond the genomics of the plant, to, pheno to phenomes, and, and getting, the real, uh, getting this data translated into a better understanding of how those components impact health and wellness. Uh, it's, it's only a small start, but it is a start. And I, I think one of the things that we've been really pleased with over the last year and year and a half is, is that uh, by changing the way we think of things, the way we talk about what our capabilities are in the science of agriculture, 
we have raised the level of discussion amongst the other, uh, amongst other government agencies so that we can truly act as a as as a whole of government that multiple agencies addressing the the the, the, the single question we're doing it in USAID with USAID and USDA we're doing it with energy uh, the department of energy and and USDA and in this case of health and wellness between NIH NSF and USDA so we're very excited that, that these, these discussions are ongoing. We're optimistic that they'll lead us someplace. We certainly wish we had a, a, a greater way to contribute to growth of that interest with additional resources that we could place towards this very, very important part of, of America's future in health. It's a great question. All right. Thank you very much. Please um, let us give us a round of applause. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.